It's Wednesday, January 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Russian military agents have hacked into Burisma, the Ukrainian gas company at the center of the scandal that led to President Trump's impeachment. The tactics used were phishing emails used to steal login credentials and also gain access to one of Burisma's servers. We still know very little about the information that was accessed, but any new information could impact the impeachment trial. Maggie Miller, cyber policy reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Next, a creepy airport story. A woman named Ashley Barno was boarding a flight at the San Diego International Airport when she began to receive flirty text messages from an unknown number. The text soon turned out to be from an American Airlines employee who got her information off her luggage bag tag. Barno is now suing the airline for negligent hiring, sexual harassment, and stalking. Reese Tebow, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what all these text messages said. Finally, the Pentagon has confirmed that they do have top-secret classified briefings and secret classified videos about the Nimitz UFO encounter. The Navy has said that a review of the materials determined that the release would cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States. MJ Benias, contributor to Vice, joins us for the latest that we're learning about the Nimitz UFO evidence. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff are interested in one thing, which is their partisan attacks. You notice they have zero interest in any actual corruption. They don't want to know what happened during Burisma. In fact, they say if you investigate what happened with Hunter Biden, that's a crime in progress. Joining us now is Maggie Miller, cyber policy reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Maggie. Thanks so much for having me. President Trump is facing an impeachment trial in the Senate over his efforts to pressure Ukraine to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. A lot of what was going on regarding that was Hunter Biden's work for a Ukrainian gas company called Burisma. And now we're learning that Russians have actually hacked into that gas company at the center of this whole impeachment thing. And we don't know exactly what they've learned yet, but the signs are all pointing to Russians are getting involved again. Maggie, tell us what we know about this. This is a very significant development, particularly given, as you mentioned, the company Burisma's involvement in the uh, impeachment inquiry. That stems from the fact that former Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was on Burisma's board until quite recently, um, until he stepped down. And so with the Russian attack on this company, it certainly is an immediate issue having to do with the impeachment inquiry. And more troubling is just how similar this attack is to the Russian attacks in 2016 on both Secretary our former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's campaign and on the Democratic National Committee. Those attacks, as the new attacks that were revealed last night, both involved Russian operatives sending what are described as phishing emails, emails designed to get information from their targets to, in this case, the employees of Burisma and in 2016 to Democratic National Committee employees and to staff on Hillary Clinton's campaign and just trying to get credentials that would allow them to gain access to some of the information. So we don't know yet what these Russian operatives were able to access in the case of Burisma. That's a little bit unclear. What we do know is they did successfully steal some of the credentials to gain access to Burisma systems information, and that could have problems down the road. And certainly its resemblance to what happened in 2016 is very troubling. And these phishing attacks are really some of the simplest forms of hacking or getting these credentials, but they're highly effective. And they're the calling cards of these Russian intelligence units. I think it 
it was uh, formerly the GRU. There are other alias to other researchers that are called Fancy Bear. That's a funny yes. name. Um, <laughs> but these are the calling cards of this specific group. That's why they say, hey, these are the Russians are hacking the Ukrainian gas company at this point. And how did we hear about all this first? How did this first kind of come to be that we we're getting these inklings that they were doing this? So the New York Times first broke this story last night, and it came from research done by a cybersecurity group, Area One Security, that they found evidence that this group known as Fancy Bear or GRU, they were targeting Burisma. And they had tipped off the New York Times about this and actually then put out a report on the specific ways that they were targeting Burisma employees, mostly through sending an email that would direct to a website that maybe looked like a Burisma website and successfully fooling at least a few employees into disclosing some of their credentials. And that's what's most dangerous about these phishing attacks, whether they come from Russian operatives or whether they come from run-of-the-mill hacker, is that a lot of times they're not cut-and-paste, easily identifiable fake emails that you would immediately put in your spam folder. A lot of times they really do work to make them seem credible. And so I, what I think is really important, and this goes for all Americans, I would say, when you're receiving an email that's asking for your credentials or inputting things, really scrutinize just who the source is and what they're asking, because it's very easy to be compromised in this sort of situation. Totally. I mean, we do this podcast for iHeartMedia and our tech people send us random emails sometimes and if you're the person in the office that clicked it boom right away it's like oh this is a phishing exercise you know you failed this one and everybody yep. knows about it very soon after that because of like i said the, the simplicity and the effectiveness of these things as mm -hmm. you mentioned we still don't know what the information that the hackers got from this but coming at this point where we're i mean i don't know maybe a week away now from a senate trial and any mm -hmm. new evidence in that trial could blow up the whole thing, really. Obviously, you know, they're trying to say the, the president was trying to fight corruption and Hunter Biden was making a ton of money by working at Burisma, despite having no prior experience in the natural gas area. So the implications for possibly the impeachment stuff is pretty big. But who knows if any of this will come out in time? And what's also worth pointing out is that actually these attacks on Burisma actually happened back in November, which was right at the height of all the impeachment hearings on the House side. And I can't say this conclusively, but I do think that timing is certainly suspect. And of course, yeah, next week, the Senate trial is most likely due to start. And yes, as what happened in 2016, when Hillary Clinton's campaign was attacked, and then all these documents and information started being dropped, I mean, there is the potential that Russia could do that in relation to Burisma. I mean, as the New York Times reported yesterday, they were able, these Russian hackers, to get inside at least one of Burisma's servers. Again, we don't know what they were able to take, you know, how long they had access to these servers. We don't know what, what the next steps are. However, it's not an accident that Russia targeted this company. And it's certainly not an accident about the timing, I would say. And it could have big ramifications if Russia were to drop some of this information right in the middle of the Senate trial. It would certainly throw a wrench in everything, I would exactly. say. Exactly. Maggie Miller, mm -hmm. cyber policy reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Just knowing that he knew what I looked like and that we were in an enclosed flight on an enclosed plane and there's no way out, like really, really scared me. Joining us now is Reese Tebow, reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Reese. Thanks for having me, Oscar. 
We're going to talk about a pretty creepy story that happened at the airport and in an airplane. And when people are traveling, a lot of times they keep to themselves and, you know, don't want to be bothered by other things. And then something like this happens. And it's like a perfect example of like why you always got to watch out for your belongings and everything. So this is a story of a woman who was being harassed by an employee of American Airlines. He had got her phone number, started texting her creepy messages, and they were on the same plane, on a, a plane from San Diego to Chicago. It's just a crazy story. Reese, tell us a little bit more about this. So Ashley Barno is the woman here, and she was at the San Diego International Airport waiting to board her flight to Chicago. And she gets a text message from a number she doesn't know. And it says something like, hello, how are you? And she responds politely and says, you know, I'm fine. Who is this? Sorry, you know, don't have your number. <laughs> right. And this guy kind of banters a little bit and then says, by the way, I must tell you, you are gorgeous. And she responds and says, thanks, but who is this? At this point, you know, you don't know what it is. It could have been somebody you met a week ago or something. So you're just kind of like getting some creepy vibes, but you just don't know exactly what's happening yet. Exactly. She's like, is this... This person throws out a name that she met, and this guy's like, no. And she asks again, how'd you get my number? Who are you? And he's kind of trying to play this game with her. He's right. telling her, well, you just got to guess. At this point, it could be just, you know, like your number neighbor or just like a random person right, who yeah. is nowhere near you. But then he says something that really creeps her out. He says, I just saw you at the airport. You were looking very gorgeous in gray top today. And she's, of course, wearing a gray shirt. Now, that's the first instance of really being creeped out. I mean, you can just imagine the feeling of dread because now you know, right, that somebody's watching you. Somebody's seen you mm -hmm. in your current outfit and they're sending you these kind of weird text messages out of nowhere. This is all kind of spurred a big lawsuit now against the airline and this man. But tell us more about this. How did these text messages progress? They exchanged over 100 text messages wow. and it's actually asking those same questions. Who are you? How did you get my number? That kind of thing. And, and this guy mixing kind of mystery and this strange, creepy flattery with basically dodges to her questions. And it continues. So she's sitting in the airplane and he says something like, are you also headed to Chicago? And she then realizes, wait, this guy's on my plane. And then he tells her that he watched her board the flight and just didn't say anything, do anything, say hello, just watched her walk past him. And I don't get into this in the story, but in the text messages that were shared with us, she says, well, why didn't you say hi? And he said something strange like, I was scared. So the texts are coming and we come to find out that this man is an employee for American Airlines. And he eventually tells her that he got her phone number from her bag tag, from her luggage, which begs even more questions like, was he sitting next to her in the waiting area? Did he take a picture of the bag tag? Things like that. So, I mean, really amping up the creep factor. She ended up having to contact one of the flight attendants on the flight and say, hey, this guy, his name is Ahmad. He says he works for American Airlines. He's on this plane. He sent me all these creepy text messages. And what did the flight attendant say at that point? 
when Ashley reached out to a flight attendant, the plane was in the air and she explained the situation. She was in tears. The very thought of being in an enclosed aircraft and literally having no place to run. I think listeners will be able to empathize with how terrifying that is. And the flight attendant in Ashley's telling was really kind, said, okay, this is scary, made sure that Ashley was seated far away from this person who she evidently recognized and knew, or at least was able to identify. And then she checked in throughout the flight and made sure that Ashley was still doing all right. And then when they landed, when the plane landed in Chicago, according to Ashley, who told her lawyer this, people who looked like security guards came onto the plane before everyone else left and escorted this guy off. And then everyone else cut off the plane. Wow. Apparently, there had been a report, I guess, that said that he had done this before, maybe to another passenger. So as I said, this spurred a lawsuit now. And she's suing American Airlines because I guess she was trying to get answers for a long time. They weren't responding to her. She wanted to know if there was any disciplinary action taken. I think he no longer works for American Airlines. They took some disciplinary action. Tell us about the lawsuit. And do Mm -hmm. we know what this man, like what position he held with American Airlines? This whole thing spurred a lawsuit, and Ashley and her lawyer are suing over something they call negligent hiring, sexual harassment, and stalking. And they're saying that American Airlines knew of this person's propensity for basically being creepy to its customers and didn't do anything about it. Now, that's an accusation that American Airlines has not discussed. So they basically aren't getting into the weeds there, nor did they tell us what position this guy Uh, held. They didn't tell us whether he was a flight attendant, whether he was someone at the gate swiping tickets, whether he was checking people in. We don't know that. What we do know is that he was not on duty when this happened. So he was not, for example, a flight attendant working that same flight. He was an off-duty American Airlines employee and has since been terminated. The kind of circumstances around that are also unclear. Reese Tebow, reporter for The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And the famous video that was captured was shot by a gun camera of one of these F-18s of this sort of white round object zipping off screen. And I guess when it's been sort of expertly assessed, it moves at quite a tremendous rate, something that's sort of not really prevalent in in any known aviation or or even the laws of physics. Joining us now is MJ Benias, contributor to Vice and author of The UFO People, A Curious Culture. Thanks for joining us, MJ. Thanks very much for having me. We're going to be talking about a UFO encounter that's been in the news the past few months. We've talked about it on the podcast a couple times, the Nimitz UFO encounter. What we're learning now through a Freedom of Information request is the Pentagon has top secret classified briefings and a secret classified video about this UFO incident in particular. MJ, tell us a little bit more about this. Just to recap, in 2004, in November, the USS Nimitz fleet out in the Pacific encountered swarms of these unknown objects. The most famous incident happened, I believe, on the 14th of November, where several pilots were sent to investigate in their F-18 Super Hornets. 
And the famous video that was captured was shot by a gun camera of one of these F-18s of this sort of white round object zipping off screen. And I guess when it's been sort of expertly assessed, it moves at quite a tremendous rate, something that's sort of not really prevalent in in any known aviation or or even the laws of physics. So there's been a lot of interesting speculation and, and theorizing going on. But what's sort of come very recently is a researcher named Christian Lambright sent a FOIA request to the Navy. And basically, they came back saying, you know, listen, there's sort of two things that we can't share with you. The first one, and what I think is really sort of the very interesting one, is a series of briefing slides. We don't know anything about them, but clearly related to this incident. So we know that somebody in the Navy created these slides, created a briefing, and then would have presented this briefing to their superiors. And obviously in that briefing would be a lot of interesting, I think, salient details as to what exactly happened, potentially what other data we have regarding this case. Are there radar tracks? Are those being stored somewhere? That type of thing. The other interesting piece was that there was a classified video that's held by the Naval Air Systems Command, I believe, regarding the actual footage that we have in the public. I contacted the Pentagon asking for clarification on what exactly this video was. They were very clear to state that the length of the video that is in the public domain is identical to the video they have, what they call the source video that's classified. And that was one of the sources of dispute because Popular Mechanics had done an interview with four other witnesses to this, and they said they saw something that was a lot longer, something in the range of eight to 10 minutes. So there was always kind of a dispute of the length of this actual video. Exactly. So there's a lot of speculation that is, you know, maybe there's another video out there. We just don't know where it is. Maybe the Navy no longer has it. So when you FOIA request the Navy, they don't know where it is because someone else is holding it. Who knows, right? We really don't have any information here. The Pentagon has come out and said, you know, the video that was described in the FOIA request most recently is the same length as the public video. I sort of did a follow-up series of questions and I asked, you know, is it in higher definition? Does it have audio? Does it have other data sets attached to it that we can look at? And they responded with sort of, you know, we can't answer that question, sorry. So that's sort of another intriguing aspect. You know, I don't want to blow it out of proportion, but we could have audio, for example, of this incident that we haven't heard. The Navy also did say that they determined that the release of these materials would cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States. Statements like that really start making people's curiosity go. It's really interesting. You have this odd statement that just hangs there and everyone's really attached a lot of weight to it, right? Like, what does this mean by grave national security risk, right? So we need to be careful, right? We don't want to jump to any conclusions yet. We have a few pieces of information, but not very much. So again, I think the the pursuit here is now just to keep going. Using the FOIA system is great. It allows us to kind of access different departments and potentially get these little tidbits of information out. But the Pentagon and the Navy are both very tight-lipped about what exactly happened on this date in 2004. What about some of the other people that have spoken out recently? I know that Chad Underwood, who was the pilot who recorded this video from his infrared cameras on the plane there, he came out and kind of spoke about it. He doesn't want to necessarily be attached to all the UFO craziness and suspicion, so to speak. But he did say that whatever he was observing did not obey the laws of physics. So there's even confusion there with him. Clearly, what the pilots and what some of the radar operators saw were objects that, according to them, 
don't necessarily follow sort of known laws of aviation or physics. This thing was traveling at speeds and moving in ways that would rip a conventional aircraft apart. The radar operators were saying that these things were making jumps in altitude from something like 60,000 feet to 20,000 feet in split second. It's really convoluted, right? You want to trust the pilots and you want to say, yeah, you know what? I trust them. But then unfortunately, we don't have any data beyond the actual video. We have a lot of testimony, which I think is good testimony, but there's only so much we can do with that. What's really needed is the radar data. What's really needed is any additional video data that's out there. But again, these are classified top secret files. They're not going to release them anytime soon. MJ Benayas, contributor to Vice, author of The UFO People, A Curious Culture. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 